For this day comes from Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 21. Then Jesus began to say to all in the synagogue in Nazareth, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is is not this Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. The truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove Jesus out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What we just heard in the Gospel from Luke is the second part of a story that was read last week. It's the reaction of Jesus' hometown crowd in Nazareth to his very first sermon. And the reaction doesn't make much sense unless you remember what the sermon is. So let's take a moment to remember it. This is all happening as Jesus is beginning his public ministry. There's already rumors spreading about him, and in large, they're very positive. Praise, especially for his preaching and teaching. At that time, Jesus goes back to his hometown, back to Nazareth, where he was brought up. And the story tells us that he goes to worship on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. That is, he goes to a place he was expected to be, in a way he normally went, on an ordinary day. And he's assigned to be the assisting minister. So he stands up to read as if it were any ordinary Sabbath, and he unrolls the scroll to the prophet Isaiah. And he finds the passage that says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolls the scroll back up and preaches one simple sentence. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The end. Sort of. It might be hard for us to understand the radical implications of the passage Jesus just read. Of all things, Jesus has chosen a vision of the Jubilee year. God's command that every 50th year, the world turns upside down. Slaves are freed, debts are forgiven, land goes back to its original owners. And none of that's metaphorical. This is real debts, real slaves, real oppression. This is so chaotic and disturbing to the way things work that we think, we're pretty sure, that the people of Israel, despite God's command, never fully uh, implemented a jubilee year. And that's because it would result in total chaos. 
It's a time bomb sitting in the middle of the economy, set to go off every 50 years. The economy and the justice system and the people who make money off of loans, and while it's really good news for the people at the bottom of everything, it's not so great for those who make their living off the status quo. So if that isn't enough, Jesus calls us back to this vision of Jubilee, and then he does something remarkable. He says, that thing, that vision, that jubilee, it's already done. It's fulfilled. This whole radical, impractical, transformational explosion has already happened. That's his whole sermon. It's the original mic drop. Jubilee, done. Boom. (laughs) Now, if you stop there with the congregation's initial reaction... To this sermon, everything sounds great. They're a little surprised. They say, wow, I thought this was Joseph's kid. Didn't expect that to come out of him. Maybe they're a little skeptical. Who does he think he is? But it's definitely true that for Jesus' hearers on this day, what he said is good news. And that tells us something important about the people who were there. That's that the people who were in the synagogue that morning are not the people on the top. They're the people for whom forgiving debts and releasing slaves and giving land back to its original owners and ending oppression, they're the people for whom that is good news. They're the regular, ordinary people, not the rich and powerful, and they are delighted. But Jesus is not done. Oh, no. Unlike most public speakers, Jesus does not end when everyone is happy. He keeps going. Maybe he sees something in their faces besides their delight at this good news. Maybe he sees a sense of possession or entitlement, a glint of a little too much satisfaction at this good news, and so he keeps going. He keeps preaching. I bet I know what you're thinking, he says. You've heard the things that I've done in other places. And you want me to do those things here too. After all, this is my hometown. I'm your kid, right? Let me tell you, prophets never do all that well in their hometowns. Let's remember a couple prophets, shall we? Elijah, one of our best and brightest. You might remember that there were many widows in Israelite hometowns when the prophet Elijah was around, many of whom died of starvation during that awful famine of three years and six months. But God did not call Elijah to go to any of them. Elijah went to a widow in Sidon, in the town of Zarephath. There's no Israelites there. Or Elisha, remember him? Remember how many Israelites suffered from awful leprosy during his time? And yet the one God called him to go and cleanse and heal was not an Israelite. It was Naaman, a general, your enemy from Syria. Maybe there's a short moment of silence after that last bit, but then, as quickly as they had first rejoiced at Jesus' good news, the crowd turns to rage. 
and not just rage, but violence. They are ready to march Jesus out of town, up a hill, and off the nearest cliff. So why? Why the sermon whiplash? What happened exactly? How did Jesus' former friends and neighbors move so quickly from love to hate, from joy to rage, from delight to revenge? Well, how fast can a preacher anger a congregation? Shall we find out? (laughs) In that spirit of Jesus, I'm going to ask you ten questions. I invite you to close your eyes, if that feels okay to you, and then think carefully about your response. Don't say anything. Don't give us any indication of what your answer is. They will all be different for all of us. Just answer these questions in your own head for yourself. There is only one rule, and that is that your answer must be only yes or no. No explanations and no defense. Number one. Most of the time, I am in the company of people who are the same race as me. Number two. No one in my family has been in jail or the correctional system. Number three. When I go shopping alone, I am usually not worried about being followed or harassed. Number four. The religious holidays observed in my school or workplace mostly match my own religious observances. Number five. A stranger has never asked to touch my hair. Number six. I can afford medication when I need it. Number seven. When I choose lotions or bandages or makeup in flesh or neutral colors, they will basically match my skin. Number eight. I am comfortable calling the police if I need them. Number nine. I do not worry about disability access when I enter a building I have never been in before. And number ten. When I ask to speak to the person in charge, I will likely be looking at a person of my race. Okay. Open your eyes if you closed them. How did it feel to answer those questions? Did you ever want to provide a little context, maybe a little bit of explanation? Yes, but, or, well, most of the time, but, or, yeah, but, you know, what about? Well, then, congratulations. You are a normal human being. The questions that I just asked you are the types of questions you would find on a tool called a privilege inventory. How do I feel? Uh, Well, Tyler, I I have a guess for at least one of them, yeah. There are all kinds of privileges in this world based on our race, our gender, our sexual identity, our age, our abilities and disabilities, our economic status, and our religion, among many other things. What those privileges have in common is that we did nothing to deserve them. The world is simply built to benefit us if we have them, based on who we are. 
Privileges generally make life easier for men than for women, for white people than for people of color, for straight people than for the LGBTQ community, for wealthier people than for poorer people, for those without disabilities than for those with disabilities. Each of us, of course, is a mix of privileges and hindrances, of advantages and disadvantages. But what we generally have in common is that confronting those privileges and telling the truth about them, realizing how they benefit us, often makes us want to, let's say, push people off cliffs. As we realize that our life has been made easier by some accident of our birth, we so often want to explain all the ways that our life has also been hard or how we have worked very much to deserve what we've got because it's painful to admit that the unfairness and injustices of the world always benefit somebody and that sometimes that somebody is us. And yet the very first thing Jesus does in his own hometown with all those regular, ordinary people is give them a privilege inventory, forcing them to face the assumptions they don't even realize they're making. Rather than bask in their admiration of what a wonderful speaker he is, Jesus tells them stories to help them realize that God's love and justice and mercy are not their possession or their right or their privilege. And just like in the synagogue that day, when we realize that about ourselves, we are quick to rush to our own defense. Rather than listen to the experiences of those who are disadvantaged by the same thing that gives us a leg up, we explain it all away. Rather than stand together, willing to tell the truth and hear the truth and admit that in this life, we see only in a mirror, dimly. We push and shove and argue and defend until finally, the last one of us has gone off the cliff and it seems like there's nothing left. What else is it that we read today? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not insist on its own way. Love rejoices in the truth. It never ends. What Jesus is preaching in the synagogue that day is love. That's why he has come, for them and for us, for that love and with that love and in that love. And because of that reason, he will not let, let us stay in the mess that we've created. It does ask something of us. It does require that we step away from the cliff. It calls us into facing the truth and listening to one another and taking our time and acting for change, and we will make mistakes. We will be messy and imperfect along the way. But the promise this day is not that it won't be hard. Not that we won't occasionally get really, really angry about it. But instead that 
the God who showed up in worship that day in Nazareth, just an ordinary worship day with a bunch of ordinary people, any other Sabbath, who stood up and read that old vision of a world made new, of slaves freed and debts forgiven and a home and a place for everyone. That God who said, this day is here. It's now. No more waiting. It's done. That's love. And if we live in that promise, with that love, then what have we to fear? Thanks be to God. Amen.